Hi guys, and welcome to another edition of the Fight Up Boxing Podcast. I'm Lukash, and um, yeah, today I'm going to be quite excitable, especially about the first fight I'm going to talk about, with um, Jesse Rodriguez beating Carlos Quadras, because they, I think we've got the birth of a new star here, basically, about the lower weights, um, so which in, invariably means that not as many people are going to hype him as they should be, but we've got a new star, and then I'm going to talk about Chris Eubank versus um, Liam Williams, um, and... At the end, I'll go to talk about Keith Thurman versus Mario Barrios and what that means for the welterweight division. But um, I'm going to start with um, Jesse Rodriguez and how chuffed and surprised I am. Um, you know, like I predicted that he was going to lose. Um, um, I before the before the fight, I rated him, but he hadn't really been on my sort of radar as one of the next great things. Um, he was in. He's out of the Robert Garcia gym, and I'm always a little bit sceptical. Like I always think they're going to get to somewhere, and then I think with with Garcia fighters, I tend to think, okay, they're gonna they're gonna not necessarily not even for sure because Mikey was one of the best fighters in the world. Mikey Garcia was one of the best fighters in the world at one time, but there's going to be things that are that going to limit them in some ways. And the thing about the performance is that, um, and I should have, you know, there were things that he was sort of doing before, so maybe I should have predicted, but it was such. He wasn't doing the things that I always talk about with Mikey Garcia Jim, and I'm going to get to that at the end. Um, but first, I'm just going to talk about just the performance in itself and why it was so impressive. And the, like, you need let's start with introducing the fight himself because I suspect that he would have been relatively new to quite a few of you. He's 22 years old. He's an American fella. He's previously fought at uh, light flight and flyweight, which was why this was one of the reasons this was so impressive. Um, he was, had been scheduled to fight on this card already against Fernando Diaz, and um, when Thrissa gets Rungvisai, who had meant to be in the main event against Quadras, um, had to fall out because of illness, um, he took over. He decided to step up in one... Technically, he was stepping up one class in weight, but he hasn't fought... Like, he's been fighting, in theory, at 108. He's fought a lot of his fights at one at 110 pounds. Like both him and his opponent have come at 110, so... Whether that was a catch rate, some of them in it, you know, if you look at box rates, some of them are scheduled in at, um, at light fly, and some of them at fly. So it's, it's, he sort of jumped up at basically a division and a half here, is what it's fair to say. At five days' notice, and a massive jumping class above what he's ever faced before. And even it gets what you know, he had intended, I can't remember if he was meant to be fighting, he had intended, intended to fight a flyweight, a light flyweight for a world title. And then today he was meant to be fighting. Um, on the card, on this card, he fought on the card as well. He was meant to be fighting Fernando Diaz, and obviously Quadras is just you know several levels above that. And so basically, my prediction was that he'd do well because he is a neat and tidy fighter, but that basically that Quadras's unpredictability, that Quadras's the thing about Quadras I've talked about before. Um, if you follow me or you know have seen me on Band of Turk or. So I've seen some of my conversations on Twitter and stuff. Is that I don't think I think that what limits him at the very highest level is that he doesn't really react what his, to what his opponents are doing, and you can see that as the fights go on. Like he's always been very, very competitive. He's been in with the best of the best. Like literally, he's been in a Chocolatito, Estrada, and Sirusikets or Rungvisai, and he's always started strong. And then sort of fallen off as the fight's gone on because they adjust and he doesn't because he isn't really reacting to what's going on he's just throwing at what he can see and I thought you know at a, 
at the highest level, this sort of gets him into trouble. Even like he beat wrong beside, but he was sort of falling behind, and then a cut that had been exacerbated, that had been caused by clash of heads, got exacerbated, and the fight stopped early. So he quite likely would have lost that as well if the fight had gone the distance. So he has this tendency at the highest level to sort of to be worked out. But I didn't think that uh, Rodriguez was going to have the experience to do that. And I thought that Rodriguez's style, which is to put pressure on an opponent, make them react and then react to the reaction, I thought that that was going to get him into trouble against Quadras's style of just not... He's not reacting, he's just throwing. Like, um, And it didn't. Now, even though the thing, the physicality did tell, like... Um, Quadras was landing on arms and gloves a lot and even still you could see it was hurting Rodriguez but he firstly he was so good at protecting himself um, and his movement was so good and his everything was just thro- thrown so seamlessly together that he just dealt with it and I mean his footwork is the star of the show is his footwork so let's start, start with that and this is something that I I got a little bit annoyed by it, and lots of other people have made this uh, comparison as well. The commentary kept comparing him to Lomachenko, but a lot of the sort of the Twitter boxing heads that I follow, and yeah, probably if you listen to this, you'll know most of them as well. It's like Lee Wiley and um, Oli Oli Radarekt made this comparison too. Is um, a lot of what Rodriguez is doing is sort of Orlando Canizales reborn. The the way he moves around his opponents, like the knockdown that he scored in round was it three? Um, the knockdown that he scored in the fight it was a beautiful piece of work but it was just completely like you can find clips of Canizales doing the exact same thing where he's um, he comes in in one stance and with Rodriguez um, he's Rodriguez is southpaw so the default it will be from southpaw to orthodox but I suspect you, you might see him do this both ways I think it did in the fight um, Canizales did it both ways like Canizales is orthodox but you see him do it both ways um Oli posted a tweet out, if you see this um, soon after me recording it, so hopefully soon after me putting it out, um, you can check out Oli Radarek's um, Twitter and find a little compilation of Canizales knockdowns and um, just these little pivots. But basically what he does and what Rodriguez did is he'd come in in one stance and Rodriguez came in in southpaw. Then he'll come out, he'll step, he'll come in in one way, he'll pivot around the opponent and then step out so that he switches, he shifts stance as he's stepping out basically and his lead hand becomes his backhand. And he'll throw, Canizales has done, done this both ways. In this, the instance of the knockdown, Rodriguez did it with um, with his right hand. So he was throwing the the backhand. But sometimes, you know, you can do it both ways. Canizales did it with his lead as well. But basically, the, what what the what the thing is, is Quadras thought that Rodriguez was further away than he was. So Rodriguez steps around him, pivots around him, and Quadras because he steps back. Quadras, uh, oh, I'm talking about. He thinks he's closer than he is because he steps back. Quadras sort of he just gets a range all wrong. Is basically what I'm trying to say, and apparently I am too. Um, but he's not where Quadras thought he was um, going to be, and he catches him with a right hand out of an orthodox stance. As Quadras turns to follow him, and Quadras just completely isn't ready for it. It was, you know, lovely, lovely, lovely knockdown. But the, just the fight was full of that kind of thing. There's little pivot outs, you know, step in, step around, um, step out. And it's more, you know, it's more Kanazala than Lomachenko because of those exits and those shifts on the exit. Because what Lomachenko, you know, Lomachenko is fantastic, and Lomachenko is a better fighter than Orlando Kanazala, don't get me wrong. But typically he stays in closer, like, 
he'll move back and forth before he steps away. And um, Rodriguez was only doing the one. You know, he isn't as aggressive. But, uh, yeah, like whichever way, you, whatever comparison you want to make, it was lovely footwork, lovely angles he was taking. Um, what really uh, surprised me was how well he was protecting himself as he was doing it with his guard. Um, it just everything flowed together so smoothly. This is what I wasn't expecting. It's, he's got a lovely jab, a very lovely, very compact, um, competent, like it's an offensive jab, it isn't a super ramrod, but he uses it to disguise, he uses it to feed out, he uses it to punish, he does it with everything. Um, this is one of the things I was surprised by. Like, he did quadras is difficult to draw like genuine reactions from, as I said, but he did have to have the jab in mind, even though it wasn't, you know, a punishing Golovkin sort of stinging jab, he had to have it in mind, and even when he wasn't, you know reacting to it he couldn't see what was happening behind it so um so it made it very difficult for him to just make a decision on what to do at any point um and behind and then after that um yeah rodriguez is high guard like he was getting stepping in close and just bringing up the guard so smoothly like there are a lot of fighters who have good footwork and good movement and a good jab but the jab and the footwork don't necessarily combine together um and this is actually something, this kind of the thing that I'm talking about with, it's part of what I'm talking about with uh, the Garcia gym. Well, let's talk about that for a bit. Um, with why, why I was impressed with the foot, so impressed, so surprised by this footwork. You know, I knew it's sort of coming, but um, how well it all came together. It's because the thing about Garcia gym fighters is that they're very well scored, they're very well drilled most of the time. Um, I have my thoughts on Virgil Ortiz, but he's getting there. He's getting better. Um, but they tend to obsess, like I could say, they obsess over the perfect range. And they sometimes get hesitant about breaking what they think is perfect range and coming in closer. And like this caught Mikey out. Like even at his, probably at his best, he could be forced back by an opponent moving forward at him because he needed to have just be right on the edge of the pocket. And um, Virgil Ortiz is a very different fighter, much more aggressive, but he has sort of the same thing, where he'll get right to the edge of the pocket and he's incredibly dangerous there. But um, he won't follow... He won't follow in behind that, really. So he kind of relies on pushing his opponent to the ropes because because if they're not on the ropes, then they can always move back. And with Mikey, it was more of a different thing, right? Where if an opponent stepped into his range, he'd sort of run, not run away, but um, step back and just keep it, try to keep his perfect range. And his opponents could use that to try, sort of push it back without actually physically pushing him back. And um, with Jesse Rodriguez, it's just none of that at all. Like, he was completely comfortable, goes straight through, the, right into the pocket, straight through the pocket and out the other side, and then make his opponent follow him. And, and you know, I did see that, some of that already, but. Um, but I was expecting some sort of hesitancy, some sort of, you know, Quadras is going to catch him on the move. And it's just like, he, he, did, well, he was catching him on the move, but he was landing on the gloves and the, 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 the arms, and it was just not really getting home. And he was doing good body work, but even that was getting a lot of it, this thing was getting taken off. So it was, you know, as well as offensively, it was just a beautiful defensive performance as well. And that's what really puts him up. But, you know, this is, he's gone from being a guy who I had an eye on, I knew who he was, but I didn't, I wasn't super excited by him. Like, I was hoping for good things, but I wasn't, he wasn't on the top level of my sort of predictions. And now he's, you know, out of the guys who are sort of, 
under 25. He's probably maybe Hunter Nakatani, who I hope he fights soon-ish. Um, he's probably the guy I predict to be most likely to be pound for pound top 10 at some stage. Because like, this was already... This this kind of win is already looking like a pound for pound top ten um, top ten sort of win. I'm not saying it on its own gets him in. It clearly doesn't. But there are guys in the pound for pound top ten like Estrada, Chocolatito, and um, and Tarisikas or Rumfsai have all four quite um, us before. And like I say, Rumfsai lost. He. If the fight had gone the distance, he probably wouldn't have. But um, but none of these guys have. Um, they've all been competitive. Like Quadras, like I, I talk about him falling short and having his limitations. But these limitations are at the very highest level. Like really, the top of the top of the pound for pound. And and he just got a bit of a schooling, to be honest. Like he was never embarrassed. Like, he was never completely out of the fight. But there was also never really any question of him winning. You know, after the first few rounds, it just wasn't. Um, it just wasn't there. And this is a thing with uh, with Cuadras. He's he's normally the quick starter, and he just completely like Rodriguez, more so than anyone Cuadras has fought, was ready for him when he came in. Like he straight away he dealt with the problems that Cuadras causes. It didn't take him six rounds to work him out. It was straight away, and that's what was so so damn impressive. It was just. I mean, I'm going to be. I'm going to be talking about this performance for a while, let's be honest. Um, yeah, there's just so many little details to pick out, um, which, you know, I'm not... Uh, that, that'll be something, hopefully I'll write an article on it, um, maybe before the next time he fights, rather than this week, but we'll see. Um, but it's... Yeah, he's a, he's a fantastic fighter. He's a, he's a new star. New, like I say, a new star is born. And basically, if you're a boxing fan and you haven't seen that fight yet, you have to go and watch it. If you've got DAZN, it's on DAZN. If you haven't, it'll be, you know, it'll be around on YouTube, whatever. I don't encourage you to watch fights illegally, but it, yeah, whatever. It'll be around. You'll find it. And I re- highly recommend that you do. Get it, get it, get on board the train. Um, yeah. And what, what what is interesting, which I failed to mention at the start, is um, that just Rodriguez does have a brother. Um, which you may not have registered because they don't. Well, they do share a surname. Like if you officially Jesse Rodriguez, Jesse Rodriguez Franco, um, and Joshua Franco is his brother. Is his older? I think twenty six, and he holds a belt. He holds is it the WA belt? He holds a regular, so it's not the real world title. Estrada holds the real world title, but he has a belt in the same division. So I mean, presumably they're not going to fight each other. Um, that might be actually part of the motivation that Rodriguez is saying that he's going to he intends to vacate and go back down. That may well be because um, Joshua wants to have a run at the uh, run at the Superflies. That that might be it. But um, yeah, let's talk about that. Um, what are Jesse Rodriguez's options? Um, if he stays at Superfly, then his next fight will be Saul Rumpsai because that was what was meant to happen. So don't, like that, he was meant to be fighting for this belt um, today. So that one would be very interesting. Um, there's, I had a little conversation about this um, with Taylor. That uh, it will be an interesting one because um, this is one of the reasons, other reasons this was so impressive is um, when, Chocolatito, when Chocolatito fought Quadras, he struggled very much with the size difference. But the Rodriguez isn't that much bigger than uh, Chocolatito is. He's certainly a lot smaller than Quadras. But... Um, and like I say, the, the size and power did count. 
but he dealt with it very well. And um, it would be very interesting to see if he can do the same thing with Trisiketsu Rumpfasa, who again rolled over Chocolatito the second time, and even damaged him a lot the first time because of the size differential. I think the main difference is, I mean, there are a lot of differences between Chocolatito and Rodriguez. The main advantage Rodriguez has here is that um, his movements are more in and out. He moves around more at range, or rather, he moves in, steps in close, but then moves straight out to range. And there's just there's less, it's more difficult for, for his opponents to catch him with those looping shots. And so it would be interesting to see if you can, can cancel around um, Rumpfasso, Rumpfasso, because, like Taylor said this to me, that if you can get around Rumpfasso, he is vulnerable. Because with Rumpfasso, and this is something we've talked about before, is the timing, his timing is incredible. Like, if you've ever sat down and watched Rumpfasso and wondered why someone who looks so crude and who he does use his lead hand it isn't a typical jab but he is closing distance sort of without the usual um sort of preparations that you expect from top level fighters um like why is he so good at doing that and so like why are some of the best fighters in the world so uncomfortable with it it's because he times his movement to his opponent's movements it's something i uh, noticed quite a while back is um he makes his rushes when his opponent bounces sort of on the balls of his feet, so they're not prepared to move away or meet the um, meet the rush. And he does this all the damn time. And if he can time Rodriguez's movements, so Rodriguez's little moves in, he will Rodriguez will struggle. But if Rodriguez can beat him to the punch or to the step, so to speak, then then he will be. You know, it'll be uh, the the cat that got the cream. So that'll be a very interesting fight. It could be, and that'll be a very one-sided either way, but it'll be a very interesting fight to happen. But he doesn't uh, have to stay up there. And like, this is this is sort of the, the conversation he has to have with himself, and you know, maybe with his brother, because for the legacy, it'll be best if he can get both divisions. It may be more difficult for him, you know, if he stays up now, then the longer he stays up, the more harder it will be for him to cut back down again. So he has to consider that, and that's probably what he has in his mind as well. But at the same time, if he doesn't stay up and goes back down again, then by the time he does move back up to Superfly, it may well be that uh, Chocolatito or Estrada or, um, I mean, Mahulitas or Martinez will be bouncing up and down as well. But yeah, but the, the Australia's room for time is what I was trying to say there. They may be well past their best because they are they are already sort of on the tail end of their careers, and so he may not want to wait for those legacy divine fights. He may want them now, and it, it's also worth considering that um, the fighters at the fight below, like like I just said, Pulis Cesar Martinez is already stepping up. Again, it's supposed to be one off. He does want to come back down and defend the belt he's got at um, flyweight, but um, but he's stepping up already, and you wouldn't be at all surprised to see Sonny Edwards or. Antonio Nakatani step up at some point so if uh, Rodriguez stays at 105 he may well get those fights anyway but he may he may want to go down take them come back up it's, it's a decision he has to make and, and I would love to see him fight Sonny Edwards like, that's probably the least sort of glamorous fight of the lot but uh, Edwards is a he's a very people don't like him I've said this before he's a very tricky fighter he's very good and it's a style that we won't have seen Rodriguez in with before certainly not at this level because because he'll have 
very very big difficulty in pinning Edwards down. You know, you'll be seeing off to the side. They'll be pivoting around each other all night. It will look. It'll be a very interesting fight, and I really hope it happens. It'll just be the battle of. Like, Sonny is very much the more defensive fighter, but at the same time, he throws a lot of volume for some of that defensive. Whereas, um, you know, Rodriguez is not low volume, but he was um, he was out thrown quite heavily by Quadras, but he just had a much higher accuracy. And whether he can get the get the accuracy home on someone like Edwards, who is moving constantly while also throwing triple jabs, it's just, just I want to see it. But I also want to see him fight Hunter Nakatani and his insanely educated lead hand. So, so let's see how that goes. You know, I just I hope he gets one of those three. Like maybe he'll take a defense in the middle because uh, um, not a defense. Maybe he'll take a tune-up fight back down at one, um, one on two. We'll see. We'll see what he does. But basically, if you haven't seen this fight, see it. Um, have an eye on Jesse Rodriguez. And you know, like I say, both of a new star. Um, I'm very happy about it. I'm very pleased as a box just as a boxing fan, I'm so pleased to see someone like this come through. And I think maybe what may maybe worth considering is he's American. And the the one more fight division has received a certain amount of um, push from HBO and that his own. Um but it never really broke broke. And Tristan Rodriguez, I don't know if he you know, if it's possible for that, uh, a fighter that small to break through in America. You know, you'd hope so. But he's got more chance of doing it there than anyone else. And despite America, you know, being this fragmented market, I'm going to talk about that in a second, actually, in the context of the British fight. But it's still the place where you go to be a star in the rest of the world, sort of thing. So I'm hoping he can draw attention to the lower weights. Anyway, set that aside and let's talk about um, the other fight, the other big, the interesting fight that happened. Um, it was nowhere near as good and it's nowhere near as sort of exciting for the future. But it was a fun fight, and this is um, Eubank vs Williams. And this is, I, first, I want to contextualise firstly before I get to the fight, because I had a short conversation about with a guy on a boxing forum, like, let's say a comment section, where he said that this was an embarrassment to British boxing. I'm not going to name names because um, I just don't want to. Basically, it wasn't it wasn't that big a deal, but it was something I disagreed with. Um, so I want to frame why and that it was an embarrassment to British boxing because basically I su- suspect because. The British fighters with world stage attention who are clearly not really world level. Like, they'll fight. Um, Eubank, having won, will fight probably for a world title again. But they're not, you know, they're never going to be competing for pound for pound. They're not really world, world, world class. But the fact that British boxing can get this kind of attention for this kind of fight for domestic level scraps is one of the best things about it. And like, um, there was a tweet released yesterday. Apparently, this is one of the. I think they said it broke a Sky free-to-air record, not free-to-air, but um, not pay-per-view. Basically, record for the cumulative total, not for no for the um, average rolling average. They said it was something like five hundred thousand rolling average, with the one point five highest. And they said that that was a record. Like I don't know if it is the record or not. If it's just a Sky record or a British TV record, but it's a, basically there's a lot of viewers. For a fight that wasn't for any kind of belt, not even a British. Um, that helps British boxing so much, not just because of the fight itself. And the fight itself was interesting, and there was a personality clash. They don't like each other. It was cool. But, you know, we know who Eubank is. Everyone knows who Chris Eubank is, mostly because of his dad, but he has this aggro thing going on, and people don't like him, and he gets attention. 
the most casual fans, you know, they'll have seen Williams, they'll have, they'll be familiar, but they wouldn't really even know who he was, and now they will. Like they, this many people saw him fight. Now they know who he is, and so when other people step up when he's on other cards, whether he's fighting the opponent or whether he is just on the undercard, it's going to be oh, I saw him fight Chris Eubank, and that will build that builds. This is something that British boxing does so well. They're just build, constantly building interest in the next fighter and the next fighter and the next fighter. And people have favourites that aren't necessarily going to go to world level. And that just maintains, you know, it maintains the interest of people in boxing the whole time. And that's why, you know, it's why a Josh Warrington is selling out arenas that the biggest fighters in America can barely, you know, think about. Like he's selling out 15,000, 12 to 15,000 uh, every time he fights and needs. And in America, this is sort of the the best of the best type thing. So, you know, it wasn't. Uh, uh, you know, I, I may have made more of this comment than uh, than was really uh, warranted. But I just wanted to say, like, this is what I like about British boxing. Even if the fight itself was like, mm, and I like, I enjoyed it myself. Like, don't get me wrong, it was a very silly fight in a lot of ways, and it wasn't like a barn burner. It wasn't a. It wasn't like last year with Troy Williamson versus Ted Cheeseman, which would have been a fight of the contender if it hadn't been for the laminate sort of making them fall over all the time and ruining it. This wasn't on that level, but it was enjoyable and I had fun. And it was a very strange fight. It was sloppy um, from both sides. But that just kind of makes it more interesting. Like Even speaking as an analyst, like I enjoy analysing perfection and near perfection, but I also I enjoy analysing and it makes me a better analyst to analyse imperfections. And there's lots of, you know, I can talk about this fight for almost as long, possibly even longer than I talked about the last one. Because there's just so much to get, you know, you can learn from this. And, what you know, one of the things you can learn is you have to make the right decisions. And um, this is actually a, it's an odd fight for me to talk about in the context of my own prediction. Because I talked about how I thought Williams was going to win on points because Eubank was going to make the wrong decision fight as a sort of cut price for Jones. Yeah, that's a bit harsh, but that's what's happening. And lose too many exchanges doing that before he sort of um, countered into something he was better suited to doing. In the end, he never needed to do something he was better suited to doing because he took out enough of a lead to start with. But then the rest of the fight was um, pretty much Williams doing what I said was going to happen, but it was just too late. And so let's talk about what happened. Basically, in the first four rounds... um, Williams got knocked out three times. Everything that landed seemed to hurt him and nearly knock him out. It was very, very strange because, don't get me wrong, there were good shots from Eubank, well-timed, sharp, accurate. But they weren't that hard, and he wasn't—he didn't look to be that off balance. So he wasn't clearly wasn't completely stable, but he didn't look to be that out of shape to be getting that hurt by the shots that had been thrown. Like It looked like there's something wrong with his punch resistance. Just completely fucked. And then after that, he got himself together, and he did start to fight better. Like, this is the thing about Williams. He's a bread-and-butter boxer. He's not super complicated but he did make the adjustments and start fainting and sort of switching as he came in and um, and he made um, Eubank work more and and he sort of he didn't take over he never took over but you could make an argument that everything from round 5 onwards um, until round 11 due to the dodgy knockdown you could make an argument that Williams won every round after that so he could have got a draw like if he hadn't been knocked down in round 11 he could have got a draw it would have been generous but it wouldn't have been completely out of pocket to do that um, and you know Eubank claimed after that he was just trying to punish him and I'm sorry that's a load of bollocks he just isn't that good fighting on the outside 
Anyhow, would you respect Roy Jones? And I think Roy Jones isn't necessarily always going to be about making fighters try to be a copy of himself, but in this instance, it's kind of what's happening. And Eubank, like, he's got the speed almost. He's not as fast as Roy Jones, but he's very fast. But just every other attribute of his is wrong for for this sort of outboxing. Because the thing about Eubank is, is that his footwork is never going to be that good. And the other thing is that he loops everything. Like, um, it was talked about earlier in his career that maybe he, I think he has hyperextension with his elbows and it causes him pain to fully extend his arms which, you know, um, would explain, I don't know if that's true or not, or if it's still the case, or it's just um, sort of a habit he's going to, but he doesn't fully extend his punches, like almost none of them, even when he's throwing a jab, it doesn't go all the way out. And so when you're fighting on the outside, you're curtailing, like he's curtailing two or three inches of his own range for everything he throws, because everything is loopy, everything is not fully extended, and it just, it's it, even in this fight, it was costing him because Williams had more room to work in, you know, after to recover in than he needed to, otherwise needed to have done. And yeah, for me, Eubank's best attributes have always been his, um, his volume. His, like, he, I, I enjoy his attacking combinations. He isn't, you know, he isn't some Joe Kawasaki or Lomachenko, but I enjoy him, the way he throws. He has very good stamina. He has an incredible chin. And I think he should have been sort of an attritional, not work on his defense, but be an aggressive attritional fighter who tries to break his opponent down by volume rather than dancing on the edge of range. And that's not what he's done. He's decided to be, basically, I think that uh, to be a little bit unkind, but I think fairly accurate, I think that Eubank would have been much better off going to going, aiming at being a budget Joe Kazagi than a budget Roy Jones, which is what he's doing now. And um, even though he won this fight, and you have to give him credit because he, he didn't do anything, like it wasn't a fluke. Like Williams made his mistakes and he got given uh, that advantage. So he, you know, he won comfortably and well. Uh, but, you know, I say comfortably, but like I say, you could have, without the last knockdown, a draw would have been a justifiable result. And it shouldn't have been after those first four rounds, right? Like, it's just, it's just complete nonsense. So, so there was that. But what I would say is that Eubank won the mental games. And I mean, that was easy. it's much easier to do when uh, your opponent is uh, having to chase the fight. But um, but he did kind of like every so often you just see William sort of break concentration and, um, and lose his game plan and start kind of just doing... Just trying to get at Eubank, and you know, normally I don't, I don't particularly like showboating that takes place out of range. Like the thing with Roy Jones and the good kind of showboating is it's essentially an exaggerated faint mode of fainting. Like um, Lemaire Godot does this very, not as flashy, but very well. Um, Roy Jones was a master of this, where he would do ridiculous and vulnerable things in range, and then he'd punishes opponents for trying to punish them and that's not what Eubank was doing Eubank was standing way off and dancing and showing off and he'd evade first and then show off and dance and you know what have you and you know I prefer not you know that that's not my favorite thing I prefer show to be in range where there's some you know risk of if it goes wrong and you know people have been caught out show when they think they're out of range and opponents not done them caught them it's very satisfying when that happens you know but yeah, but 
even though I don't like that sort of showboating very much, it it just worked for him because you, um, Williams was just get so frustrated like in the last round. He made a very stupid decision where Eubank was just completely refusing to um, refusing to engage at all. And in this case, he was running. Like I don't normally, I don't like talking about running in boxing because most of the time it's just outside defensive boxing. But in this instance, Eubank was just uninterested, completely uninterested in any kind of engagement in the last round. Just in the last round. Before that, he was boxing fine. Um, and what Williams did was sort of stood, stopped in the middle of the ring, looked at the referee, glared, shrugged, pointed. I don't know what he thought the referee was going to do. He wasn't going to get disqualification. And even if he had docked a point, it wouldn't have been enough. So he needed to be leaping him. And that would have been a risk because Eubank's fast enough to potentially knock him out for that, something like that. But he needed to be really, really, really pushing the tempo. And instead he just kind of looked at the referee and tried to get him to sort it and wasted a good 30 seconds. Um, yeah, that, that that was the end of the fight, basically. Um, but yeah, with Williams, you know, there are, he's, he's going to take away. What he's going to take away from this is that he made a very bad start. And it is a concern that an Adam Booth fighter took four rounds to start fainting because Adam Booth, anyone who's familiar with this fight, with the stables in the past, is very, very, very keen on foot feints and all kinds of feints. There's janky movement. There's, um, you know, Tyson Fury isn't an Adam Booth fighter, but he could easily have been. They're typically a bit more, well, now he's aggressive as well. Um, but yeah, you're Ryan Burnett, you're um, George Gross back in the day. Like he broke up with him just before the first frog fight, but you could see that thing in him. Um, David Hay, you know, I was never the biggest fan, but he got him to there. Like um, Ian Lee at one point, they've all got this janky, herky-jerky, front foot heavy, very fainty style. And that just wasn't there for Deems. And then it sort of came out and and that started to cause Eubank problems. Um, yeah, it was just an interesting back and forth of two guys making mistakes and also using, you know, using what they've got. And Eubank, like, don't get me wrong, Eubank used to speed well enough. I think he should be using it in a different way, but he did, you know, he got there in the end. He got he got what he needed to do and he got it done. So there's two guys using the attributes that don't, they do have to punish the opponent's failings and it was just a worthwhile fight to watch to be honest it was just it was good fun it's not going to change the shape of the division it's certainly not going to you know it's not heralding a new star or anything but i enjoyed it and um yeah it was good i like these british level i like i just like i say i just like this british level stuff um so that was good fun and now i'm going to move on to the final final fight of the night i'm going to talk about keith thurman versus mario barrios I mean, I'm not, you know, super enthused about this fight. It's possible you could tell that in my voice. I didn't watch it live. I've given it a little watch since. Um, you know, I haven't got much comment on the scoring. Keith Thurman won. There's not really, you know, not much to argue with that. Mario Barrios is a, you know, he's okay. He's, he's fine. It's basically what you could say about him as an opponent for someone of Thurman's experience. You know, the most of the questions in the fight were about how was Thurman going to look after his long layoff, after his uh, long time off? Because cause if he looked, if he was at his best, then he shouldn't have had any problem with Barrios, which ultimately he didn't really. Um, but, it, you know, Barrios was good enough offensively that if Thurman had lost a step, he'd give him trouble. And, I mean, this is the thing. Thurman, you know, it wasn't trouble-free. Like, he, Barrios did land on him a few times. So Barrios is okay going forwards. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it's not like it sound the alarm. Um, 
Sound the alarm, Barrios landed a few shots on Thurman. He's never he's never going to be relevant again. But um, but there is a certain amount of thought that uh, you know Tank Davis stopped Barrios at a weight down. You know he was hugely outsized, and he you know he stopped him. And you know since I don't rate Tank as highly as a lot of people do anyway, you know I should surely be skeptical of of then Thurman not being able to stop him. Like you would have thought that someone like Thurman should be able to get through. And I mean, to a certain extent, that is definitely true because Barrios' defence is utterly woeful. Like, for all the for all that, I think he's pretty decent throwing combinations and such. His, his defence is basically non-existent and a world-level fighter should have no trouble landing real possible fight-ending combos on him. And Thurman... You know, he wobbled him a few times. He got him a few times, but he didn't take him out of there. So, in the context of what, um, how Thurman's going to be going forward, it was you know, here a bit of a little bit of this, little bit of that. Like, I don't think he's going to be, you know, he's not going to be competitive. I think with um, with either Porter or um, what I'm talking about with either Bud Crawford or with um, Spence. But um, well, if Spence, if Spence is okay, because you never know. But, you know, if you put him with an Ugas, who's now confirmed to be fighting Spencer, that's not really on the table. If you put someone like that, it'll be hard to say how it would go, apart from being maybe a little bit boring. Um, so so that's the that's my thought on the overall level of performance. But there was something I wanted to talk about, um, which I did think was a nice little improvement from Thurman, so long as he keeps it up. And that was his level changing, his throwing from when he level changed. Because we had seen him, we have seen him before, um, you know, defensively, and um, you know, ducking down or um, or um, at the knees, um, just taking his head offline and all of that sort of stuff. But he never ever really threw from there to the point where I do think that is some of what got him in trouble against Pacquiao. Um, I actually did have a quick look back. I didn't watch the whole fight, but I had a quick look back through the Pacquiao fight, and I did get the impression that um, that, that was some of Thurman's problem in that fight, was that Manny knew that if Thurman had um, had crouched a little bit at the knees, or if he'd um, slipped over to the side or whatever, then Pacquiao knew that he had basically a little bit of free time to work because Thurman wasn't going to throw from that position. And... Uh, in this fight, and obviously there's a whole different level of uh, fighter here, a whole different level of opponent, but in this fight, it was notable to me that at least every so often, it wasn't the thing that he was doing all the time, but at least every so often Thurman was sort of crouching down and then exploding out of the crouch into a punch. And for the most part, he did that quite well, because the, the thing about doing this this sort of thing is it can be dangerous, because you know when you're exploding out of, out of a crouch position, you do, you are putting more force into your whole movement and making yourself, you know, interceptable. So there was a certain element of um, vulnerability and uh, when you do that, and I think that for the most part managed that pretty well. Like he had a really good judge of the range and position he needed to be doing it from to avoid Barrios catching him on the move, if you follow. And there were a couple of times, I think especially later in the fight, where possibly when he was getting a bit more tired, where Barrios would catch him as he was going into the position. Not so much when he was exploding out of it, but he sort of ducked down into an uppercut sort of thing. So it is something he needs to be careful of. But 
it's that is something that he can take forward and can, you know he has to continue improving. And we haven't seen him for two years. Uh, maybe you, you may, I may have hoped that uh, for that for that amount of time that Thurman was out that um, he may have, that he may have worked a little bit more than that. But I do think there is evidence that Thurman took on board some of the criticism of him, some of the rules he had. And he's always been a thinking man's fighter, and possibly sometimes he thought a bit in the wrong direction. Uh, because I don't think I'm the only one who thinks that uh, possibly in the move to the sort of outboxy poke, poke style, that he had a little bit going on towards the end of that, uh, you know, before he went on his hiatus. I don't think that was necessarily a good idea for him, so maybe becoming a slightly more explosively focused fighter, attempting to put combinations together. And this is another thing, he was... He didn't attack that much, but when he did, he was throwing in combination. And that was another thing that maybe Thurman didn't do enough against Pacquiao. And even in other fights he'd won, that was a little bit concerning on that. There were pauses. Like, this is something I've said about Thurman for a long time. and uh, There's always been pauses in between his movements. It's like he hasn't uh, internalised, fully internalised the things he needs to be doing. And there's still some of that was on show. Like, I don't think that's ever going to away, go away for him. But I think he was drilling. He, I think he's been drilling combinations in a way that he can throw a whole combination without the little fractional pauses that I've been uh, that I've been talking about about with him in the past. And you know, I don't want to get too positive about that. That feels a bit harsh, but yeah, I don't want to get too positive about that because um, you know, he's been out for so long. If if that's what he's been focusing on, you maybe would have wanted more effect on someone like Barrios. You know, he's been training these explosive combinations and he landed quite a few of them pretty flush but he never got them to where he got Barrios out of there and like this is complete guesswork for me right now so don't take it as a gospel but um, I do think that, that the, at the, the same time that uh, that he needed to be drilling sort of almost rote combinations to remove the hesitation from his movement that is also in a, a certain amount of detriment because when your combinations are rote, which uh, you know you're you th- you, from the first punch, the third, fourth, fifth punch is really it's not going to change. Like when you're throwing rote combinations, it's gonna it the the whole combination is decided by the thing you do in the first go, and that makes it maybe a little bit harder to knock someone out when you've got them hurt because you're not if you're locked too locked into this mindset of um, this sort of twitch reaction to throw four or five punches at certain positions, you can't adjust the combination once the fighter's wobbling until you finish the combination and then, yeah, you know, they might have time to reset and what have you. And I think we sort of look with that here. Um, so that's, you know, something he has to maybe bear in mind. But it was overall, you know, it wasn't a fantastic performance. It wasn't an abysmal performance. It was just, it was okay. And I'm not, you know, it doesn't say, like I say, I don't think it's going to make him relevant at the very, very top of the division. But I also don't think, you know, I'm not going to say he should never fight anyone at the top of the division ever again. He's getting to the stage of his career where, you know, he had he should think about retiring and, um, you know, not, not I'm not saying he's got, uh, I think he should finish, I think he should finish. But he's got to have this sort of the end goal in mind at this point. So, he, you know, he's not going to be changing, he's not going to be massively improving and changing from here on out. But I don't think he has to be winding down just yet. So, you know, it'll be... It'll be interesting to see where he goes from here. I do think he'll end up probably be a little bit fuller for the fighters coming up. Like the, your Boots Ennis or your um, your Virgil Ortiz will be um, sort of maybe he, their management will be aiming at uh, Keith Thurman, presumably. Like I'm, 
I really can't be bothered to think about the promotional and management situations there at the moment. But um, but I assume that the, that that he is the kind of fighter that I'll be aiming for. Um, you know, I'd give him better chances against Ortiz than against um, Boots, just because I think Boots is much better than Ortiz. But um, but both of them will be dangerous to him. Um, you know, both of them would be a danger to his to that ongoing tendency to sort of hesitate. Like even like I say, he with the combinations he was less hesitant, but in other situations there is always that Keith Thurman pause, that, you know, jab, pause, move, pause. And I don't think that's gonna, you know that's just something he's never gonna get rid of at this age stage, at this age of uh, age of uh, in his career and yeah. That's just, it is he is he is who he is at this point for all the little improvements he may have made. So, but you know that was that fight. It wasn't an awfully significant fight for the division. You know, Thurman was not an insignificant fighter in the division. Right? The last time he fought was for a title. But um, but yeah, the divisions moved on. I think, even though the t- top fighters are the same and still not fighting each other. But uh, yeah, it's basically a. I'd say it's a confirmation that Thurman is at this point a gatekeeper without having actually kept any gates because Barrios wasn't really going for any world level fights um, yeah you know I, I like Keith Thurman he seems a nice lad I don't know particularly you know I'm not a huge fan of him as a boxer without also being I'm not a not a, you know I, I'll watch his fights I probably won't watch his fights again if you know what I mean so you know that's that fight not an awful lot not an awful lot for me to talk about there but, um, but yeah, like I said, the, little, the combination thing was interesting. And then, um, you know, that's it for the week. I'm not going to go into, um, you know, I'm not going to go any longer at all. Um, there will be, there is a one card at the weekend. You know, we had a busy weekend this weekend, uh, the last weekend, and now we've got, started quite a week. Um, but John Ryder's fighting Danny Jacobs. I'll give my thoughts on that in an article, so look out for that to come out soon. And other than that, yeah, we're looking forward to the rest of the year and I'll see you know I'll see you next week and uh, have a good one